On a warm July day at Connecticut's Mystic Seaport in 2016, on the decks of the only remaining wooden whaling ship in the world, a group of strangers, bound only by their shared love for Moby Dick, gathered to read the book aloud. Starting at noon, those assembled listened to a Herman Melville impersonator recite the first chapter from memory. Pacing the deck, he held the attention of a diverse audience. Hipsters with Moby Dick t-shirts, families with young children, readers young and old, men and women, first-timers, and old hands. Well, when I go to sea, I go as a simple sailor, right before the mast, plumb down into the forecastle, aloft there to the royal masthead. Melville recited his words with a flourish, perhaps inspired by the passion of his audience for his work an audience that took over a hundred years to materialize after the initial commercial failure of the book when it first appeared in 1851. All too quickly, Melville reached the final paragraph of the first chapter. By reason of these things, then, the whaling voyage was welcome. The great floodgates of the wonder world swung open, and in the wild conceits that swayed me to my purpose, two by two, there floated into my inmost soul endless processions of the whale, and midmost of them all, one grand hooded phantom, like a snow hill in the air. And with a nod to the crowd, he silently left the ship. He would return the following day, August 1st, Melville's birthday, for the last chapter. With the author gone, and with no formality, one reader took his place, quietly beginning chapter two. This group of readers would carry on reading the entire book, completing it in 24 hours. I never saw such a sight in my life. I tore myself out of it in such a hurry that I gave myself a kink in the neck. And it was only by the sense of weight and pressure that I could tell that Queequeg was hugging me. My sensations were strange. Let me try to explain them. When I was a child, I well remember a somewhat similar circumstance that befell me. Whether it was a reality or a dream, I could never entirely settle. Advances. But presently, upon my referring to his last night's hospitalities, he made out to ask me whether we were again to be bedfellows. I told him yes, whereat I thought he looked pleased, perhaps a little complimented. We then turned over the book together and I endeavored to explain to him the purpose of the printing and the meaning of the few pictures that were in it. On this episode of Chapters, we visit a Moby Dick marathon. We'll explore reading marathons as a phenomenon and the Moby Dick marathon at Mystic Seaport specifically. At Mystic Seaport's 31st annual Moby Dick marathon on July 31st, 2016, I interviewed some of the readers, and they helped me understand what reading a book in a marathon style can do for its participants, and how it changes the way they experience a book they so admire. And we'll learn why it's the kind of experience readers return to every year. So the neat thing is, is that, you, you, you know, whether you're reading or you're following along, in 24 hours you're going to get the whole story. We'll also learn what it's like to love a book enough to want to read it in marathon form, and to go a step further and perform it on stage, as one reader did in an adaptation of Orson Welles' Moby Dick Rehearsed. I actually 
bought a couple of harpoons off eBay, and I have them in my in my apartment. Uh, I also have a whaling lens there. So I was and so I was able to imagine standing up in the in the prow of a whale boat, holding that harpoon, in, in, actually so, and then keeping it as hard as hard as I could. What is it about Moby Dick that inspires such devotion? We're about to find out. This is Chapters. I should begin by noting that my own experience with Moby Dick is fairly limited. I, like many readers, first encountered the book in high school as assigned reading in an AP American Lit class. Maybe it was because the book was assigned and my reading of it seemed tied to grades, but I don't remember it having a huge impact on me. In fact, my most significant memory of that time is the last day we read it in class. Our teacher came into the room wearing a peg leg and carrying a Fudgy the Whale ice cream cake. I guess in hindsight it was a great experience, as anything with an ice cream cake tends to be. For anyone who, like me, may not be overly familiar with the plot, I should offer a brief summary. But this book is notoriously tough to summarize. As proof, we put out a challenge to our listeners to summarize the book in 30 seconds. Here's just one example of an attempt by a listener who found the 30-second cutoff impossible to live by. It's like a 300-page book. How are you supposed to summarize in 30 seconds? Okay, it's obviously more than 300 pages. Anyway, Moby Dick is a Rorschach test. Anybody has their own opinion about what the book is actually about. I've heard people say that it's about, like, the struggles of Republican Ireland. I've heard people say it's about hunting God. Thanks, Philip Pullman. Um, I've heard it's really just about the decline of an ecosystem. Honestly, what Moby Dick means to me changes from time to time. But I guess it's a story about loss and the inability to like really wrap your head about what it means to lose and lose in such a catastrophic or lose things, lose people, lose your faith, lose your perception of the world in such a like stunning way that the only thing the narrator has to like reckon with the loss of the Pequod and everything that was on it and sort of like the innocence of like not having chased the whale is writing a really long book about what happened. At its core, it's the story of a whaling captain named Ahab and his quest for revenge on Moby Dick, the white whale who took off his leg. The book follows this voyage from the perspective of one of the crew named Ishmael. The book's opening line, Call Me Ishmael, remains one of the most famous in literature. The book is about so much more, though. Along the way, Melville offers rich descriptions of the natural world, reflections on philosophy, the human condition, whale anatomy, and much more. What are we to make of Moby Dick's whiteness, we might ask? Of Ahab's rabid yet fruitless hunt for revenge? Of Ishmael's attempt to assign meaning to these tragic events, in the form of narrative. Is this book just a series of metaphors? Ron Swanson of Parks and Rec would say no. Metaphors? I hate metaphors. That's why my favorite book is Moby Dick. No frou-frou symbolism, just a good simple tale about a man who hates an animal. Does the white whale actually symbolize the unknowability and meaninglessness of human existence? <laughs> no, it's just a fish. 
Now that we've reviewed the plot and maybe have more questions and answers about what this is all about, let's turn to marathon readings of Moby Dick. The very fact that these marathons exist feels miraculous. When the book was first published in 1851, it caused little stir. Melville drew on his own experiences on whaling ships to create the vivid depictions of seafaring life in Moby Dick, but it sold only 3,200 copies by the time of his death in 1891. In the 20th century, readers found a new appreciation for the book, and there may be no greater symbol for its popularity than the Moby Dick marathons that take place every year at Mystic Seaport, the New Bedford Whaling Museum, and in cities and states as far afield as Jerusalem, London, San Francisco, New York, Kansas, Kentucky, and Long Island. To learn more about the marathon at Mystic Seaport, the longest-running marathon established in 1985, I spoke to some of its organizers. I asked Mary K. Burkar Edwards, Demonstration Squad foreman and resident Herman Melville scholar, to explain the history of the Moby Dick Marathon at Mystic Seaport. So it started 30 years ago. We just had our 30th last summer, and there was a, um, a supervisor named Jan Larson, and she was wondering if we could read the book, and we didn't know at that time how long it would take. Um, so we gave ourselves four days, and we only read during the day, and we found that we could actually read it faster than that. We finished it in about three days. So on the fourth day, we were just repeating some of the early chapters. Um, and uh, that we did that that way a couple of years, and that was fun. But then we thought, wouldn't it be great to try to do it as a 24-hour marathon, to do it through the night? So we started to do that. We would start on July 31st, and we read um, for all, all night. And it takes anywhere from, say, 23 to 26 hours, depending on the readers. You know, sometimes there's better readers or faster readers. Other times they're slower readers. Um, so it comes in around 24 hours, but but it's always slightly different. Um, and so we just sleep overnight on the Charles W. Morgan, which is the only whale ship left in the whole world, built only seven miles away from and seven seven um, months after Melville's own ship, the Akushnet, which sailed from uh, New Bedford on January 3rd, 1841. Uh, uh, the um, Morgan was launched in July of 1841. And so we're we're sleeping on the only whale ship left, and it's very magical. So you're lying there at night, and you kind of wake up, and you see the stars through the rigging, and you hear the sound of Moby Dick, and then you fall back asleep. And we stand watches during the night, so there's always some people operating, and others can sleep. And then at the end of it, every year, we have a big cake, the whiteness of the cake, which we cut with a small harpoon-like tool made in our shipsmith shop and give out to everybody to celebrate Melville's birthday, which is in Melville's birthday is August 1st. He was born August 1st, 1819. As Mary told me, the marathon is special in part because it's, quote, so democratic in the response it gets. The organization of the marathon is also particularly democratic and organic. Mystic Seaport hosts the marathon, but does not dictate who can read and when. As Denise Kegler, supervisor of Museum Theater, explained, the seaport provides a unique space, the last remaining wooden whaling ship, for a community of readers to form. 
the marathon is sort of created for and by the participants. So essentially, everyone who comes to listen are also our readers, and it's very informal. We have a sign-up sheet. People can read one chapter, three chapters, five chapters, however much they'd like to read. Um, but it it is yeah it's very creates a nice community because it's it's a group reading it together for each other. I asked them what they thought made reading the book in marathon form such a special experience. When we started 30 years ago, and we've done it continuously for 30 years, it was seemed like a very strange idea. But it's now become partly because Moby Dick is becoming more and more popular. It's it's definitely a, sort of a hipster novel now. But uh, um, it, it so the marathons are to because I think it combines that that soaring beautiful language and the humor but also sort of that marathon aspect, like, I can be here for 24 hours. And it's the accomplishment. Yeah. Yes, I've read Moby Dick. I read it in 24 hours. (laughs) Mary added that hearing the book read aloud also gave readers an appreciation for aspects of the book they might miss just reading it silently. For instance, she thinks reading it aloud reminds us of the humor in the book. Um, I mean, I think that there's a lot that accomplishment, um, but the thing that always strikes me when I see people reading it is, is they realize how funny it is. So it, it, it's a hilariously funny novel, but people generally don't realize that until they hear it aloud. When they hear the language aloud, they realize how funny it is. So that's what keeps you going. At, at just about 2 a.m. is the chapter called The Nut. It's, um, that almost always comes around 2 a.m., which is one of the middle chapters, the psychological chapters that people find boring. But when they hear it aloud at 2 a.m., they still laugh. On July 31st, 2016, I attended the 31st Moby Dick Marathon at Mystic Seaport and interviewed some of the readers in the community that assembled on the deck of the Charles W. Morgan that day. Their experiences and interests echoed Mary and Denise's ideas about the value of reading in a community. Each reader had his or her own motivations, questions, and experiences. For Brian Holdsman, it was an experience he could share with his wife and son. Well, we've been doing uh, the novel marathon for 15 years or so. Oh, wow. Most of 15 years, I should say. We make it most years. And we as you and... Uh, Me and my wife um, and my son, who is now... 28. Brian told me he'd never read Moby Dick before he started attending the marathons, and each year he records the chapters he's read on the bookmarks the seaport hands out. My objective is eventually to read all the chapters and be able to say I've read Moby Dick from cover to cover, but it's taken me 10 years or however long. (laughs) When I asked him what made reading Moby Dick as a marathon unique, Brian talked about the joy of observing different styles of reading. Some readers take a droll approach, others serious, and some with theatrical training might take a more dramatic approach. He described one memorable reading from a few years ago. For two women, I don't think they knew each other at all. Before there was a chapter where there was a lot of interplay between two characters, and so they each played the, the character, and they went back and forth. And it'd be like they'd been doing it for years. They were just, they were just great at it. <laughs> That's probably the most memorable. I asked him if it changed the experience to read it as a group. The value, he said, came in part from the sense of completeness that the marathon provides, and even the shared burdens of boring chapters. Um, I think the marathon style is, is because I think I don't think most people would pick up a book like Moby Dick. A lot of people might start it, never finish it. There are places where it gets very long and boring. The chapter that describes whales is like nobody wants to read it, but somebody has to because it's just you know 
once you've read it, you can say you'd never do it again because it's just so long and it's like reading a textbook. Um, and uh, uh, so the neat thing is, is that you, you, you know, whether you're reading or you're following along, in 24 hours you're going to get the whole story. For other readers, the value of the experience is wrapped up in the setting itself. Gretchen Lemming also had not read Moby Dick before, either in high school or college. Surprising, she told me, as she was an English and elementary education major. The first year she attended, she stayed overnight, finding an appreciation for the humor of the book as she listened, and finding it an experience she couldn't recapture when she later tried to read it on her own. What better way than sitting on a whale ship, the last wooden whale ship, and um, and that first year that I did it, I did stay through the night. I, I took a break in the middle to go home and go kayaking, actually. And that's how I met my husband, actually. We were both coming back from kayaking. We had been here during the day. We'd left to go kayaking. And as we came back in, we had our kayaks, we had our books, we had our pillows. Um, so that's how so I So you didn't know him at all before no. this? So no. you met your husband here? Yeah. Oh, wow, that's amazing. Um, and, you know, and, and we didn't, except for exchanging greetings in the parking lot on the way in, we didn't really talk. And just the experience of being here, like I said, you know, I stayed. And that night, it was a, it was a beautiful night. So to be on board the ship and kind of feeling the motion and listening to the book, I didn't sleep at all. I stayed up and listened to the whole thing and took turns reading. Um, and the humor in Melville really comes out when you hear it read aloud. Mm. It's it's interesting. And I thought afterwards um, that I could, you know, if it takes 23 to 24 hours to read it aloud, I could, I'm a very quick reader, and that I'd be able to read it myself, you know, and, and catch any parts that I'd missed while I was gone. And I found it hard to read through it on my own, even even knowing, you know, the that it doesn't take all that long, but yeah. this is still my very favorite way to experience it. Like Brian Holzman, she keeps a list of the chapters she's read over the years, although the chapters she can read in her treasured copy now are somewhat limited. That, you know, when he proposed, he put the, the ring in <gasps> this copy of Moby Dick. So, oh my gosh. Um, so now I have to watch which chapters I'm going to read and bring like, the Kindle along her. So he, he put the engagement ring in there, and then and that was with the red ribbon. And then when we got married, um, I said I wanted this to be part of it too. So, I, um, so we put the wedding rings in there, and that's what the white ribbon for Gretchen, the humor and the language help define the value of the whole experience of reading the book out loud. For me, it's all it's all wrapped up together in the whole experience. It's it's the language in it. I love I love the language. I I'm not bothered by the long sentences. Um, I I had never thought of. Melville as being humorous. I think I read Bartleby the Scrivener as a high school student, and probably not a lot else of Melville's. And and when you hear this read aloud, or you know, after having heard it, go back and reread parts of it, there really is a lot of humor in it, and I enjoy that. Tony Scheinman, a voice actor who's also worked in theater, TV, and film, brought his dramatic skills to his reading. He is a five-time participant. To do something like this, um, for, an, for an actor, especially a voice actor like myself, where you, you get to you use your voice for the, for the parts rather than, uh, you, rather than a costume. The only costume person in this whole thing is Mr. Melville himself. So uh, 
I would, I would have to say that uh, each person brings his own particular style of his or her particular style of reading to this to this work, and uh, you never you never know what uh, the same character is going to sound like from reader to reader. I asked Tony what style he planned to bring to his reading, and he told me he hoped he'd get the chance to read Ahab's part. If I can do Captain Ahab, I'm going to bring a uh, what I consider a ferocious intensity. To he also encouraged me to read at the marathon. Doing this in front of a live audience, like I said, is it's an it's an, it's an incredible feeling. And if you if you get a chance to do it yourself, you never you never know uh, how how people are going to receive it. Of course, people are going to uh, people if you do it uh, even even badly. I mean, doing something like this, I mean, now yeah. people are going people are definitely going to applaud you for actually having the courage to stand up there and read a chapter from a, from, from the greatest American classic novel of of all time. Reading at the marathon is just one way Tony has engaged Melville's work. He told me about a performance of Orson Welles' Moby Dick Rehearsed that he appeared in a few years ago. We were when doing Moby Dick Rehearsed with a, with a minimalist stage, minimalist costuming. We were making the audience see Melville's characters and sets and places come alive. And for me to do four completely different roles, I mean... Looking at me, can you honestly picture me as a black harpooner, or you could pick you could picture me as the ship's carpenter, or as the old pro, or as Mr. Peleg, the the half owner of the Pequod? But to double up, triple up, or even quadruple up on a role in in a play by Orson Welles, no less, that took Melville's novel and condensed and condensed it into. Something like two and a half hours, including intermission. That is that is an experience, and also living those living those characters on stage. Because, like I said, with minimal, they, they were seeing the actors. Since there was no uh, scene, there was no scenery or or props of any kind. I mean, I, when I when I played when I did Dagu harpooning a whale, I actually pretend I actually imagined myself holding a, holding a harpoon. I actually. Bought a couple of harpoons off eBay, and I have them in my in my apartment. Uh, I also have a whaling lens there. So I was and so I was able to imagine standing up in the in the prow of a whale boat, holding that harpoon, in, in, actually so, and then keeping it as hard as hard as I could. That's that that is my greatest experience. That's my greatest memory of uh, dealing of uh, not dealing with experiencing Moby Dick. Throughout my day at the marathon, I had such real respect for all the readers I met and those I listened to on the deck of the Charles W. Morgan. To unpack what I witnessed there, I checked in with maritime historian and Moby Dick marathon attendee Maggie Stack. Maggie first read Moby Dick the summer after her first year of college on a crowded beach in New Jersey. She attended the marathon at Mystic Seaport in 2009 anxious to read the chapter where readers are first introduced to Starbuck. I asked her about that juxtaposition between those two experiences. Reading on a crowded beach where Moby Dick allowed her to totally retreat into herself and the world of the book, forgetting the outside world, and reading on the decks of the Charles W. Morgan. Now, before you said when you read it for the first time, you were on a beach and it helped to pull you out of where you were into yourself. And the framework of reading a marathon would seem to do the opposite. So especially reading on a wooden whaling ship, it pulls you out of yourself. It does the opposite of what books can sometimes do. And it forces you to be 
where you are physically, but also be mindful of this other community of readers of which you're suddenly a part. Is that fair? It's a much more social activity in a way. Not that like people are, you know, like necessarily chatting overly much in between the chapters or when people are reading because everybody's focused on the text and the performance of the text. But I agree. There's, you're thinking you are making yourself part of a community where you, the individual reader and your experience is only one part of this larger, I don't know, like living art piece that's being created. For Maggie, the power of the book and of sharing the book with other readers in the marathon is its many layers that provide multiple interpretations, questions, and readings. Moby Dick is, for all that I think, like, honestly, Herman Melville probably wrote it. He wrote it in, like, less than a year and a half. And honestly, at some points, it really seems like he wrote it when he was, like, on something. Like, for all that, it is a book that is either written to be or has allowed it or allowed readers to insert so many layers into it. So reading Moby Dick out loud forces you to slow down. You can't just devour the book in one gulp, much like a sperm whale and a <laughs> giant squid. Wow. Um, but you need to like slowly pace yourself through the book and really think about what's going on. Um, and different all of these people who are coming to the reading, they come to the reading with a different relationship with Moby Dick. So I come to the reading, like I said before, I came to my first reading being like, I'm really interested in the character of Starbuck. But other people come to the readings who are very much interested in different aspects of the book. Um, so there's a weird, like, 30-page, like, from nowhere short story in Moby Dick, the town host story, where Ishmael, like, somebody tells Ishmael a story about, or Ishmael's telling somebody a story about this maritime misadventure. I'm not going to get into it. Um, and it, like, is not related at all to anything that's going on in the book. But we got somebody who is just like... This is my truth. Like, let me perform the town host story for you. So, <laughs> or people who are like really fascinated with like the pathos of Ahab, who are really interested in like trying to get like reading Ahab sympathetically or reading Ahab like a like scenery chewing monomaniacal monster. The point I'm trying to get at, like beating around the bush, is that. One Moby Dick, reading Moby Dick out loud on these marathons build this community. But two, everybody comes to Moby Dick with something different, with a different question, with a different appreciation for a different aspect of the book. And you learn to love the book in different ways, hmm. even if that's not what you necessarily came there with. The joy of attending the marathon, then, may come from the unexpected pleasures you find in Melville's language, whether in his humor, wisdom, or in his reflections on the natural world. It may also come from the feeling of being part of a community of readers who love a book as much as you do, a community you can revisit each year for 24 hours. If you'd like to attend the Moby Dick Marathon, visit Mystic Seaport on July 31st. To stay overnight, you need to make a reservation beforehand by contacting guest services. If you can't make it to the marathon, check out Moby Dick in Minutes, a play written by Denise Kegler, consisting entirely of Melville's language from the book, condensed into a 30-minute adaptation performed by the Seaports Theater Troupe. My thanks to Mary Kay Burkhardt-Edwards and Denise Kegler at Mystic Seaport for their help. 
I would also like to thank readers Brian Holdsman, Gretchen Lemming, and Tony Scheinman for speaking with me during the marathon last year. Thanks also to Maggie Stack for her thoughts on Moby Dick. Lastly, I would like to thank Taylor, our technical director, for all of her help. You can follow us on Instagram at ChaptersPod. There you'll find photos from the 2016 marathon, including pics of Herman Melville. You can find us on Twitter at ChaptersPod. You can find me at MaryMahoney123 and Taylor at MJTThePhD. Visit our website, www.chapterspod.com, if you'd like to share your story on chapters. There you'll also find links to Moby Dick-inspired artworks, adaptations, and articles. You'll also find bonus content, Maggie Stack's hot takes on Moby Dick adaptations and fan fiction. If you enjoy our show, please rate and review us in the iTunes store. It really helps listeners find our show. We'll leave you with a wailing song sung by Brian Bradley of Mystic Seaport. Thanks for listening. It was 1849 on the 14th day of May When we weighed our anchor and we set our sails And for Greenland bore away, brave boys And for Greenland bore away Now our captain's name, it was William Moore And the first mate's was the same And the name of our ship was the lion so bold And she plowed the rage in Maine, brave boys And she plowed the rage in Maine Now the mate, he stood in the upper cross trees And a fine-looking man was he Eye in the horizon with a spyglass in his hands There's a whale, a whale, a fish, cried he There's a whale, a fish, cried he Now the captain, he stood on the quarter deck and a fine-looking man was he. Overhaul, overhaul, let your davit tackle fall. And it's lance your boats to the sea, brave boys. And it's lower your boats to the sea. Now the boat's being lured and the whale being struck. And it gave one flurry with its tail. And down went the boat with those six jolly tars. And they never come up anymore, brave boys. No, they never come up anymore. When the captain he heard of the loss of his men, while well, it grieved his heart full sore. But when he heard of the loss of that whale, while well, it grieved him ten times more, brave boys. Oh, it grieved him ten times more. Oh, the summer months have come and gone. Cold winter winters are coming on. And we're headed back for New Bedford with the pretty girls are standing on the shore, brave boys. And the pretty girls are standing on the shore.